What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers. This is the duct tape episode. For whatever reason, my high-tech computer, which uses state-of-the-art technology for its um, keyboard, decided, nah, fuck it, not tonight. So <laughs> going from my gaming laptop, it's finally getting some genuine use um, beyond... A little bit of playing Horizon Zero Dawn and a lot of stuff for Dungeons and Dragons. It is actually being worked tonight. So this episode is brought to you by Asus. I think I think is the brand. Let me guess. The high tech main computer is an Apple. Uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. There's your problem. Shut up. <laughs> that Imagine is how good their products would be if they made them for people and not just money. Dude, shut up. <laughs> it, when it works, it's great. <laughs> this is, I of course, I'm I, I am George Terran, and that is the delectable voice of my eternal co-host and the true star of the show, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. Um, I just had to stick the boots in the Apple for five minutes there. I love it. They're getting forced to change their charging ports on the iPhone, like... It is so difficult just for the sake of being difficult. Ironically, I had a training session actually for my, my day job where I had to actually physically go into an office and run a training session for someone like outrageous. I mean, physically going into an office. And this poor person was very uh, technically unsound. They weren't really technically uh, inclined. So just asking them to cut and paste something was a bit of a challenge. What made the challenge all the more uh, extreme was so she had just switched to using an Apple machine. And so she'd be like, how do I cut and paste this? And I'd be like, I have no fucking idea. I'm going to have to Google that. Um, so It's easy. Once you know how it's easy, but of course it has all the same keys on the keyboard, but nah, we won't use the same commands as everyone else on the earth. We'll create our own. Well, they are sort of like america's answer to nintendo is like yeah everyone does it this way but we're gonna do it this way but why don't ask questions because just enjoy it i was reading a story about them recently about how this i don't know if you've seen the stories about they're suing uh, or charging a guy in the u.s he used to made a lot of money it should be noted from one of those sites that sold roms and a special fancy hardware you could plug into your um switch to, to make it run things it shouldn't run and um how hard like this guy's like seriously in jail for like a long time for making yeah i think i remember work. hearing something about that but i'm not saying it's like i mean it, it actually does veer from just a oh i'm gonna pop stuff on the internet because i can't find it to i'm actually gonna make a shit ton of money by pirating shit but like yeah wow nintendo they don't fuck around when you screw up screw around with their stuff you know no, they they really don't. Um, and they've been getting uncomfortably more aggressive with it recently. A lot of um, people have had to take down a lot of their YouTube content because they don't have rights to use the music from Nintendo games. And things like that's so like, come on, it's that's free advertising for you, Nintendo. Learn. Everybody else does, right? Google. Like, I mean, you yeah. look on Twitch. No, it's so occasionally people go, oh, she game Twitch streamers have to pay rights to mm. a publisher to actually play their game, and I'm like it's why people buy games is they see people play them right yeah the amount of games yeah. i've ended up trying because i've seen people playing them nine times out of ten if if a young kid uh like 16 or younger comes into my shop 
He'll say, I saw my, t- my favorite YouTuber or a Twitch streamer playing this game. Can I have it? He's like, yep. That's it. And that's why another re- revenue for them, but never mind. We are off topic very early. It doesn't take What long. a surprise. So this week we were um, following on from um, the help of last week's mo- chain movie of the week. We followed Sissy Spacek. To a movie, a classic movie that I had never seen. Um, the one, the only, until it was remade with um, Chloe, uh, Grace Chloe, Chloe Grace Moretz and uh, Julianne Moore. The, the, the movie that introduced us to John Travolta, Carrie, um, directed by Brian De Palma. That was our chain movie of the week. I've uh, got a little bit more update on Obi-Wan Kenobi from myself. After Travis's continual glowing reviews of the boys, I invested time and caught all the way up. And, oh boy, I'm glad friend of the show, Callum Grayson, he advised that for the first for the first few episodes of the new season, maybe don't eat just before. And he's probably wise, probably right. Um took in a uh, documentary on Prime Video, Val, all about the life and career of one Val Kilmer. Travis has got a documentary fun with us on The Roadrunner. Um, he's experienced the new season of The Orville, as well as the palate cleanser for Michelle after the dire review that we had on the Trek respective last week of the Star Trek movie. Travis watched Bridget Jones' Diary. And speaking of the Trek Respective, we have episode two, Trek Respective, The Wrath of Khan. Potentially, the of, hashtag, The Wrath of Michelle. I was going to say, The Wrath of Michelle is probably more like it. Uh, something to look forward <laughs> to there. So we've got quite a show for you. Um, so let's get straight on into it. Should we go straight to the chain movie of the week? Carrie, for sure. Um, yeah. So I am astonished you've made it this far in your life and you haven't seen this. Yeah, like, no. this is one of those films that like people don't tell anybody you haven't seen it. Like it's a classic. Carrie yeah. be based on the Stephen King novel of the same name. Carrie White, a shy, friendless teenage girl who is sheltered by her domineering religious mother, unleashes her telekinetic powers after being humiliated by her classmates at senior prom. Starring Sissy Spacek as Carrie, the in- incomparable Papa Laurie as her mm-hmm. mother, Margaret White. Amy Irving as her friend Sue, or friend sort of character. <laughs> John Travolta as Billy Nolan. Nancy Allen as Chris. Uh, William Cat as Tommy Ross. Um, and a bunch of other character people you've probably never heard of. Um, what did you make of this in your first time around? I've, I've seen this a lot. Mm. So it's aged well and not well in the same same regard brian de palma is he's he's past his prime now um but he has certainly created some genuine classic movies um and this i think was very much part of his rise um and there is a lot of quality to the way that he directs it but the style of horror that this is and the chilling realization of these terrifying powers it's very 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 tame compared to what we get in modern horror movies and um 
just the 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 style of storytelling for this feels very dated um which makes it tricky to watch for example like the opening the very opening of this movie is that slow kind of creeping camera through the girl's locker room and it's like okay yes i see why they chose to do this but it i don't know if they'd get away with doing something like that where it's young girls stark naked having having their so like for lack of a better descriptor cheerleader fun in the in the changing rooms well, i think that's maybe um, mischaracterizing it a little bit it is i had a similar thought i mean like i said i've seen this film a lot of times mm. but it's been a little bit a few years since i we talked about last week my um ill-advised and ill-fated solo podcast um project the king for a day mm -hmm. it come to life in a different form during lockdown but carrie was the first <laughs> and only film i recorded the show about and um because that's probably the last time I saw it about six years ago, but you're yeah. right that the opening scene where Carrie is in the shower and the rest mm -hmm. of the girls are getting, I get the idea is they're getting changed and going showering mm -hmm. after physical education class. And say mm -hmm. it's cheerleader fun does make it seem a bit like Debbie does Dallas, which it's not quite, but the no. camera does, the camera does linger on Carrie yes. quite a bit. And in a very male gazy kind of way if you're familiar with yes. that kind of terminology in the sense it's, it's salacious mm. uh it's it's lingering over her body and her legs and her mm -hmm. and also look i don't know how it was in the uk did you guys ever actually have to do that after phys ed class like do you have to shower like we would have showers but we were stinky boys so it would be sort of like just run through and maybe if you wanted to purposefully be late for your next class because PE always ran along every time and it was always a race to go to like French or I think it might have might have also been English were the two ones that always were the ones classes for me so it was just run through soap and out and you'd end up kind of as it dried you'd still have crusty bits of soap on you because you didn't actually have time to salaciously just wash yourself and feel every curve of your body and just I, enjoy I, um, having a shower i think you have a diet collar of stinky boys in the uk because i can guarantee <laughs> you like i i i she's a high school here I know my my first high school where I did a PE class. I don't know if you did PE classes at my second high school. My first one did have a fairly well kitted out, um, you know, uh, gym gymnasium kind of thing with like proper change rooms and showers and stuff. I don't think I ever saw anybody actually use them mm. in my years of doing it. I know I never held sure as hell took a shower after PE class, which actually in hindsight is kind of gross. But like here we are, and I'm asking some. He's like. Not having had any personal experience of how it works, mm. I severely doubt that you know anyone would do, take that opportunity to have a long, luxurious mm. shower. As he said, sort of caressing their own curves and rubbing the soap over them, mm. you know, mm. so, so luxuriously, and you know, taking their time to make sure. Mm. And, you know, like I suspect, I, um, and you know, if you're um, perhaps North American and you watch or listen to the show, tell mm -hmm. us what it's like for you. Whatever we're imagining incorrectly, but. I think you're right in the sense that scene, you kind of like, come on, I guarantee you, no way. And she, it, it, a child like Carrie, who is so socially disconnected and 
bullied mm. and put down, she'd be in and out as soon as humanly yeah. possible. She would be yeah. there for hours. But either way, she the, the key to the scene is she gets her period for the first time. And so yes. and doesn't because of her overly religious mother who is who's never explained how mm. um I guess the human reproductive system works, she does yeah. she's dying, she doesn't know what it is. And yeah. she, this is a cause for great hilarity by her classmates who throw pads and tampons at her in a horrific mm-hmm. display of cruelty. And overall, the that opening sequence from be- beginning of the movie to the first fade away, essentially, it does very much set the set the tone for having and, and successfully painting Carrie as the victim. And um, you get the very clear idea that this isn't just the first offense of these people picking on her and bullying her. We see um, we see indications of that when they're still uh, before the shower scene where they've uh, the ball is in the volleyball, I think it is, or netball or whatever they're playing passes to her and she fails and they just instantly just all kind of dogpile on her with with bullshit and arguments and making her feel small. Um, so it works as a narrative tool, but I just, I don't see it being a tool that would be used at least in that way in modern cinema. Almost oh, certainly that opening scene would certainly not be something. I mean, it is fascinating yeah. though, that like in the seventies, people were so much more comfortable with nudity than we are 40, 50 years later. Like, I mean, that kind of nudity, that's probably a good thing. Cause it is, as I said, really, really male gazy really yeah. kind of salacious yeah. kind of um mm. uh, gratuitous mm. i don't know yes. if you noticed this as well i'd never noticed this before watching it this week but there's even a slow-mo close-up of the shower head before we pan down onto carrie and that shower head is incredibly phallic yeah I mean, unmistakably phallic yeah um, they're, they're not hiding anything with with that honestly and again I understand it to a point as a narrative, but at the same time, it's like, mm, uh-uh, you don't need it, and it, it won't fly today. I don't um, know that it would. Again, I don't, you're right, I, I don't think it would. And, you yeah. know, that's probably the weak point of a film is um, the way they, is some of the way, some of the nudity is shot. Yes. I mean, the famous yes. story about this film, whether it's true, is mm. up for grabs, but the famous story is originally. Carrie Fisher was cast as Carrie and Sissy Spacek had been cast in the role of Princess Leia. Um, Again, you can take it or leave it. People have different theories about whether it's true. Uh, The idea being that Carrie Fisher left the role because she was uncomfortable with the nudity involved. It's fair. It's fair. Um, But it it does give us our introduction to Carrie, played by um, very young Sissy Spacek, as well as Nancy Allen playing Chris Harrigan. Harkinson and Amy Irvine playing Sue Snell. Um, and in that sequence where they're throwing tampons and laughing at her, you get a very clear picture of the hierarchy of the, the bullies and who's the queen bee, so to speak. And that is Nancy Allen's character. Um, and then Sue just very comfortably joins in. And then through the course of the movie, we see a bit of a change of heart from from the character of Sue, and she becomes much more sympathetic. And um, 
it's particularly it's quite an interesting take actually the the characters of sue and tommy um sue's boyfriend who legendarily now um asks carrie to the dance and it is you do definitely to start with they play it very well and you think that it is just a part of a hoax um orchestrated by chris to just further embarrass carrie um but through conversation and story and particularly with um the uh school uh kind of the the pe teacher um it was miss collins um played by betty, betty buckley you learn that it's actually sue's unusual attempt at making penance for her cruelty to carry in the in the showers and i kind of like that because it's not a regular or common character trope or tool that they use in modern modern movies anymore that idea of someone willing to go that far like she's she's willing to not go to the to the big prom and sacrifice for lack of a better term sacrifice her date with her all-star god amongst the seniors boyfriend tommy that moment of absolute divine power of, of a young girl at prom she gives that up to let carrie experience something of normal of a normal high school experience and that's somewhat noble it's a bit twisted but it is yes but it was it was a nice thing that you don't typically get um in in so like a, in a modern kind of variation of this it would probably end up being that there was another there was a boy who's carrie's only friend at school and he's a bit odd and unusual and he ultimately ends up taking her and it, they would be comfortable but they'd still be bullied by the by the cool kids or something like that instead so it was nice in a way but again it just felt like a dated ideology um but then moving moving on from the basics of that i want to talk about the horror element of this itself and i think that starts with piper um uh, piper laurie and the domineering mother and my god she plays that so fucking well just from the introduction where she goes up to a house and just knocks and just basically just barges into this woman's house and just starts talking about oh yes you should definitely come to my church blah 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 blah, blah. and she's a bitch <laughs> she's a self-aggrandizing entirely unnecessarily confident religious nut devoid of anything else that goes on in the world around her she her way is all that she can see and hear and it's this is this is probably the first of many characters like this you'll see in king's books i i said i've not read the book but i've been assured by people uh who have this is quite um faithful to the source mm. material um and look i can't point to any personal knowledge of it. Stephen King is either an atheist or anything of that nature. But I can mm. tell you, based on the work that I've read and the films based on his books, he's a man who is deeply suspicious of organized religion. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think of this character, Piper Lowe's character, being the wacko religious kind of over the top. Uh, I think of it's an obscure one if you think of a film, The Mist. Um, uh, mm. the uh, Gail Harden, Harden, Gay Harden, Marsha Gay Harden. Mm. Um, oh, yes, uh, is the again, she's kind of the evil character in that, but again, it's all based in religion and prayer and stuff like that. Um, mm. and this is the first real example of Stephen King's, I think, ambivalence towards very religious characters they're often portrayed as nut jobs like um yeah. Lori's, who apparently thought she was so over the top that this was a comedy wow wow that's uh, it the, again comparatively to to similar kind of roles that you get in modern day variations of this it was so much more subdued and subtle and there there was you know there was one or two scenes where she's kind of really devoutly preaching at um carrie but even then it still didn't get to the level of farce or anything like that i think i think it played the line really well because it was it was like have like seeing someone who is having an argument and not listening to anyone else and they are just spitting venom they're just and she's just so caught up in the emotion of the words that she's spouting and believing in them wholeheartedly. There's and it's like, oh my god, that's like a tidal wave of bullshit. Fuck. It is kind of your know, religious zealot turned up to eleven, but I mean, there are people out there like that to some degree. Oh, yeah. So, oh yeah. Um, she is over the top, but mm. you do despise her on multiple levels. She's a horrible person and a horrible mm. mother. Yeah. Um, and that makes her fate in the end all the more fun, really. Yeah, yeah, honestly, yeah. Um, but then um, as the story progresses, obviously, we learn that Carrie is, she's got a level of intelligence to her beyond the the very tight little box that her mother has set her up in for for example, the the fact that she didn't tell her about periods and things like that. Um, but she has an appreciation for poetry, and she she has the the street wiseness to not just kind of go. Ah, the the cute guy at school is asking me out. She instantly said, "Like, no, don't be stupid. Yeah, this is Why a trick." Me, yeah, yeah, and it takes a lot of kind of convincing to for her to actually believe it and even to the point of then when they drive up and they're sitting in the car she just says oh can we just sit here because i'm scared it's it's still very believable so she plays this this character very very well juxtaposed with that slow untrusting rise shall we say of her of her coming out party, for lack of a better descriptor, we have the perpetually declining, twisting bitchery of Chris, played by Nancy Allen, and how she goes just from being just a quintessential high school bully to being cruel and brutal and vicious. Like the idea of them going in and getting her boyfriend, John Travolta, to kill a cow, a, a, a pig, 
to get the blood that they need to, to pour on Carrie's head. That's a, that's a really twisted fucking joke. It's, it's disgusting. It really is. Um, but, I mean, I think it's, it says something under the underlying, you know, about bullies that they are inherently cruel. I think it's mm. been my experience of them in life. But um, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry if you're a bully and we've offended you there, so you can get fucked. Um, <laughs> but it, that, that, that course, all leads up to the prom scene. Mm-hmm. Um, which is wherever real the film really starts to hit its straps in the sense of this is some of iconic imagery here mm-hmm. where the bullies game the um uh king and queen election thing mm-hmm. to sure that Carrie and Tommy are voted the prom king and queen. Also, mm-hmm. they can tip this bucket of pig's blood over Carrie, um, in an effort to humiliate her because there's just one scene where Chris just says, I hate Carrie. Well, she's giving John Travolta a head um, and basically gives him a, him a blowjob in order to convince him to go and do, as you said, kill a pig and, and help her in her quest to really mm-hmm. humiliate um, Carrie. If, a weakness of a story for me here is it doesn't really ever fully explain why they hate yeah. Carrie so much. Like we see her and we know she's weird. She's mm-hmm. an outcast. Uh, she's bullied and put upon and... You know, Nancy is the sorry, Chris is the um, is the, the cheerleader, the, the mean girl, if you will, the queen bee. And then mm. they are threatened with a, a week's detention or something, or having their prom tickets not honored. Mm-hmm. And she decides rather than doing the detention, she'd rather uh, sneak in and humiliate Carrie. And she's, I hate Carrie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, why? Like, you know, yeah. I mean, that, that that level of vitriol might have made more sense being directed towards the PE teacher mm. who is. The person who punishes them and gives them attention and takes their prom tickets away. Mm. And, but, um, and it comes down to Carrie. Yeah, I mean, you could argue, so like, oh, she's she doesn't blame the teacher; she blames Carrie because Carrie, um, Carrie went and blabbed to the teachers, and Carrie's the reason for doing this. But they don't really highlight that as an excuse. They don't give any excuse, as you say. She just says, "I hate Carrie," and it's like, okay, story needs you to. So sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, she doesn't blab to the teachers. The teacher hears all the commotion and run, comes across to themselves. So exactly, um, it's at no point is there any explanation. And so that's a weakness of a story. Again, don't know if that's in the book, um, mm-hmm. but the script seems to eliminate it. And because it's really quite an elaborate thing that plan they go to to actually humiliate her, right? Like, yeah, you get pig's blood. You got to transport it. I mean it would congeal so they've had to keep <laughs> something to it to make mm-hmm. sure it doesn't do that this is what I, I don't know a lot about blood but you know i know enough to know that it doesn't stay fresh for very long outside of the body um so you know and they're probably going to be significant repercussions for doing so if we follow the mm. purpose, you, know, like you maybe your, you know, your graduation gets denied or something like that but it just bothered me a little bit was time going why is she like this mm. Mm. i think it's the kind of the weakest reasoning that's presented in the movie um and i think it's just a knee-jerk reaction to try and counterweight everything is from carrie's point of view she is she is the one that's put upon and bullied and everything like that but it doesn't work to like you want to you want to have a, a, a good, not necessarily a good reason, but a valid reason in the eyes of 
um, Chris as to why she hates this person in the middle and, and not, not only in the middle of giving oral sex, but she's using all of her all of her um, skill as a manipulator to manipulate her boyfriend into getting what she wants. And that's, that's a lot of effort she goes to just to get the ball rolling. It's, it's impressive, but it's, there's no explanation. So it does, it very much feels like the, one of the weak points of the movie it is. It doesn't hold it back too much. No, um, no. But doesn't. you stop and think about it like too hard, like we do, because what else are we going to do? <laughs> That's what um, we do. <laughs> throughout the film, we see uh, sort of examples of Carrie's ability to use telekinesis. We see it mm. in the shower scene where mm -hmm. she blows up a light bulb. Later yep. on, we see it when um, a, a kid rides his bike past her, calling a creepy Carrie, and she basically mm -hmm. knocks him off his bike without touching him. Mm -hmm. Um but as she, um, it's interesting that the, it's the, I guess, the kindness shown to her by Sue mm. and Tommy really starts mm. to free her from her mother's grasp. Yeah. Uh, in the lead up to the promising, as we said, which is all that iconic imagery behind it, um, you know, where she starts to defy her mother, her mother's trick. Oh, no, you, your boy just wants to have sex with you, blah, 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 he's evil. Um, mm. And that's when she starts to push back and go, no, he's a nice guy. He's all right. This mm. is going to work out fine for me. Um, and we see her really start to come into her own for telekinetic power on the mm. night of a prom where her mom's just being a complete cunt. Um, yeah. Everybody will laugh at you. Um, Everyone will laugh at you. And she tries to stop her from leaving, and she's like, she's like knocking her down the bed, going, sit there and shut up, kind of thing. Yeah. It's really kind of fucking cool. But God damn it, everyone who's ever had a, um, a domineering parent or partner or something like that has kind of gone, I wish I could just yoink. You know, save it. Yeah. You know, um, mm -hmm. and there's a sorry, I'm getting cut out of order here, but they they game the they game the prom uh, count. They are elected king and queen. They do get the uh, bucket of blood dumped on them, and that's mm -hmm. when their fit hits the sham. Mm -hmm. What did you mm -hmm. make it? This is the first time you've seen it. You've probably seen it referenced in dozens of oh, other yeah. films. Oh yeah. Um, what did you make of that final scene the first time around? Um. This is where it really shows its age more than anything because it relies on a lot of special effects, uh, practical special effects, which, whilst good for the time, have aged badly here. Um, and it's... Going back to what I said before, where it's, it's a movie out of time for me, um, it wasn't scary. It wasn't chilling. It wasn't horrific because i've seen worse i've seen people break bad in movies and decimate people even a couple of weeks ago we watched idle hands and in a kind of homage style way at the high school dance the hand causes absolute fucking mayhem and shit comes falling down from the skies. There's people locked in the rooms and there's murder and carnage and chaos everywhere. And even though that was done in a comedy vein, it was still more visceral than what we had here. And I kind of feel like given the, as we were, we were just talking about the, the effort 
and the the hatred that went into Chris's plan for dunking blood on her. I feel like it needed that counterpoint of she's just going to fucking break bad and shit just happens. And you get a lot of that cheap cover up of, we don't really know how we're going to shoot this particular sequence. So it's close up of Carrie's eyes, just as they flash from one side to another. And then you see the, the really terrible water hose sequence that looks like something from the creature from the black lagoon. Um, and it's it feels janky because I they didn't know how to film it. And I should just note here that I disagree with everything he just said. I don't think enough. special effects are that bad at all. Like I mean, yeah, they're a bit dated, but I think the effect of it is still fully effective. I don't think they're going for horror. I think this is a revenge film. Um, so I mean, it's a little bit horrific and parts of it are horrific in the sense that like, your teacher gets basically sliced in half by part of the ceiling. Yeah. You're right. The effect isn't that great, but it's the horror of the fact that her teacher's actually been trying to mm. help her throughout this, you know, throughout this film that's been on her mm. side, but Carrie's just lost her shit and killing random. Um, some of it, I will, I, I, I pay this. But the but people getting electrocuted by the uh, microphone making zzz, zzz, zzz noises is a bit silly. Mm. Um, not the greatest choice, but for the most part, the the I thought it was. I still think it holds real effect for, for me at least. I still think it's one of the. I'd argue one of the greatest sequences in modern cinema, um, mm. and one of the and one of the greatest revenge films ever made. Um, that Tommy Ross gets fucking killed as well, and he's just the nicest guy, really. Yeah. I mean, he does it because he's asked, but he doesn't. He's he actually doesn't. He actually, I think he's a very pure character in this sense. So, mm, yeah. Um, and you know the fact that um, that Chris and, and uh, John Travolta's character actually gets uh, get their own comeuppance later on mm. in a pretty pretty nasty car accident. I don't need to see close ups of people getting decapitated. I, I, are you right? People have gone further in the subsequent fifty years. That's mm. not a good thing. Um, uh, for me, I think the more horrific something is, is not necessarily seeing it. It's what you imagine you're seeing, what you feel about what you're seeing. So, um, I guess if you're very sensitive to special effects and you're looking for a very critical eye, maybe you'd agree with George, but unfortunately, I don't really disagree. It's, it's really strong stuff. It's the, it's the characters here that what make what happened. Then it is that bad. It's not like you can see the stream. No, it's 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 not the it, they they did the best with what they had at the time of, of filming, but I just feel like as this th that whole sequence should have been pure catharsis. Like, you didn't feel that? No. I felt it. The re the re for for me the reason why is because of how panicked. Um, Carrie was at the beginning of the sequence where she is having a full-on panic attack because she's having a period for the first time and she's screaming she is inconsolable and I I kind of would want it to have been much more internal and I don't I actually feel like you wouldn't have needed to see as much as what is shown I think they could have cut it a lot smaller and just kind of had 
her just hearing the words of her mother coming back into her head and just going through all those bits and those key little lines that are just floating through her mind that just cause her to snap and then just hard snap close up on her face and you just turn around and you see everything's on fire people are dead and it's all like yep she has snapped she is silent it is the perfect opposite of how we first saw her in a panic attack at the beginning of the movie didn't need to see anything she snapped and it went bad that would have been way more potent for me personally um okay well <laughs> I, I think that would have been incredibly confusing if i see <laughs> someone looks face and then I look around and everyone's dead i'm like i feel a bit ripped off i didn't see the cool shit happening like um i want to see i mean i i don't need to see um um, you know, Eli Roth style, um, you know, hostel <laughs> style, you know, horror porn. Um, that's kind of what I'm thinking when people, you say things are more extreme. Mm. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's but for me, cause the, cause the only death that is genuinely warranted and the only deaths that we should have seen in my opinion is Chris and, um, Tom, uh, not Tommy, uh, Billy because they were the willing orchestrators of everything and their death was iconic with the like the, the flipping of the car and explosion but for me as revenge it was too quick and if that was the only death that we would have actually seen it would have for me it would have just been more punchy and more so i like, think other people yeah. deserve the death so um I forget a character's name, but the chick in the red hat who was a willing collaborator the whole way. Oh, PJ yeah. Actress's name, I think. Um, uh, Norma. Norma was is in on the whole fucking thing and mm -hmm. had been a complete arsehole the whole time and actually helped mm. destroy the votes that made sure we carry one to vote. Um, mm -hmm. I um, did not, I mean, if anything, I was like, she got off light basically yeah. being not cold by the, uh, the fire hose and then burned to death um <laughs> getting so, off line. <laughs> like, you know i, I think you got this is one of those films where we're being asked to use our imagination a little bit um mm. and yeah so we're on a wrong, different page I, I i think it's i had i feel still feel it's an incredibly satisfying conclusion to that scene the scene mm. the shots of her covered in blood just walking around staring at people and just fucking tearing basically killing them is like fucking awesome um, it's it's iconic um imagery that's undeniable like just you think of just the as she's slowly walking down from the stage in the dress uh, covered in blood red just all around her it is fury of a woman scorned it's iconic picture We'll disagree to disagree on that one mm. uh, i feel like a lot of maybe younger i'd be interested in a younger viewer if you're a younger viewer Mm. and you've seen this or I, I plan on seeing it i'd be interested in seeing what they think of of, of a film mm. with the special effects like this they do look a little dated in parts but um uh when you're so busy enjoying the film or enjoying the catharsis which you weren't getting um uh, i i i can I, it doesn't bother me at all that they're a little old a little dated for a 50 year old film i think they're fine mm. um, i still very much enjoyed this film i want to say that straight away i, I think just... the, um sorry please no, I was just saying, I, I just feel like I would have, I, I didn't get the, I didn't get the revenge that I wanted, I suppose. Um, 
if you have a criticism of the end of a film, it is the final scenes uh, after Carrie. So Carrie goes home and mother's and he tries to kill her basically. Mm. And she uses her telekinesis and, and skewers her mother mm-hmm. with knives against the wall in a very Christ-like pose as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically destroys the house, um, arguably herself with it. Um, then we see we, well, the final scenes are Sue in, and her mother and Sue's having a nightmare of Carrie grabbing her from underground. You're like, mm. yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I... I, I think that was just a, a step too far over the line. Um, and it ended up just kind of tainting the the character of Carrie because it felt like something you get in the Halloween movies or things like that where the killer is never always, is never dead. And it's like, mm, no, this was a girl that got pushed too fucking far. Yeah, and the film had never hinted at its, well, I guess, telekinesis is a supernatural kind of, sort of. Mm. Um, and it was a dream sequence, so I guess, but I don't know. It felt cheesy. It felt cheesy. Mm. And maybe it's mm. cheesy because everyone else has ripped it off. I don't know. But it, that yeah. one didn't, didn't. That one I felt kind of tacked on. I think they could have probably ended yeah. it following yeah. the confrontation of her mother, and we would have been fine. I guess mm. the only this ring we could needed to see was that sue was alive and we got oh well tommy's dead too so okay yeah. but we kind of already assumed that but yeah he got hit hard <laughs> um so yeah um i i still think this uh, this conversation with michelle before watching is that we have been trying to watch mm. more interesting stuff and maybe female stories has been part of what we've been talking about and, mm. um we've had a conversation this week about whether this is a feminist film and whether uh carrie is a feminist icon you can find a lot of stuff on the internet that says she is some stuff mm. that says she isn't you can make up mm. your own mind i think it's kind of a, in the uh, i think she's kind of a feminist horror icon uh mm-hmm. in that revenge film kind of way which maybe isn't the best way um uh you sort of think uh uma Thurman kill bill kind of level of you know <laughs> action horror icon you know you're my role model. Um, you know, and, and unsurprisingly, this is one of Quentin Tarantino's favorite films. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think it goes without saying, honestly. And it rightfully deserves it because so much of the cinema, cinematography is beautifully done. The music is really expertly used as well. Um, I'm going to check who, who actually did the music. It, it, they it did was... rip off a lot of um, Psycho, bro. I don't know if you noticed that, but they used that Psycho, yeah. no, Psycho notes over and over again. Yeah. And I'm like, I, did you have to pay somebody for that or did mm. they get sued? I don't know. Pino uh, Donaggio, who I've not heard of before. Um, but uh, he, um, he did, still managed to create... He used it to help uh, elevate the characters as well, like that that level of hope in the early part, early music that's there of that like teenage hopefulness, and then it twisting and morphing slowly throughout the whole film. And those each of those kind of psycho note hits kind of denote the next chapter in the path to the legend that is Carrie. And it does, it serves the story very well without being too intrusive. The, the, 
the, the psycho hits are jarring because they are very much psycho and it, it could have done something else to punctuate the, the, the kind of like the season changes, shall we say, but it's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah, rip off someone, rip someone off good. And apparently he, um, the director noted that he, it was basically the music he wanted to use was basically the same as psycho, but decided to use it anyway. Um, <laughs> that's a likely excuse, Mr. De Palma. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know about with flying court, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but either way you will notice it. Brian De Palma wanted a screeching music cue for the mirror breaking. It was after making that decision that he went realized psycho had already used the exact music he was looking for, but he went with it anyway. Is the IMDb trivia item on that? You're like, uh, okay. He was just there, just li- listening. He's like, see, I knew it would work. Well, I mean, he's still in the film, so. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. But um, I don't really have anything else to say on it. I, I still really enjoyed it. All the performances were really strong overall. Um, while it was a soft end for me, it, it didn't have the punch that I was hoping for. I still appreciated what they delivered. Um, but, uh, I, um, yeah. I, I haven't seen, I don't know, you probably haven't either seen, I assume, the sequel or the remake. No. Um, both don't have particularly good IMDb scores, mm-hmm. so I don't got to be rushing out to see them. Interestingly, I noted Chloe Grace Moretz played Carrie in the 2013 remake, reboot, mm-hmm. remaking, whatever you want to call it. And I'm instantly like, no, no, that's a bad choice. Like, Chloe Grace Moretz is a beautiful young woman. Um, yeah. And let's say Sissy Spacek isn't attractive in her own way when she was, you know, um, at, at the age she was in this film. But, like, hmm. She looked kind of weird, though, right? She had that kind of mousy, weird look. She had the, the her kind of iconic freckles and that very thin nose. It, she, she's got a very unique appearance, and she's unquestionably a pretty person. But they make her look kind of weird in this, and it kind of yeah, go, yeah, yeah. She's the, the kind of kid I reckon kids would pick on because she's a bit weird looking. Yeah, and they did really well with the costuming for her because it wasn't that kind of stereotypical devout greys and nothing else, but it just looked like, oh, is that a little bit homemade? And it's not quite the right time period for, for when this is set. It feels like, so like, oh, we got it at an op shop and I changed it so that it wasn't sinful against God. <laughs> But um, Chloe Grace Moretz, I, and I just looked at when I was researching tonight, I looked at some of the stills from, mm. from that film. And you're like, she just looks like Chloe Grace Moretz. Like, mm. they haven't done anything with her to take away that, you know, be, that's Hollywood movie star look that she has. And you're like, yeah, I, I'm assuming they've kept the storyline and saying, like, don't yeah. buy it as being quite as believable, yeah, um, as being a put upon a bullied child, but, mm-hmm. um, but, but. But I did with CC SpaceX. So I mean, if if I'm wrong and you have seen the sequel and you think a remake and you think it's good, tell us. Mm, yeah, I, I probably still won't watch it. But hey, I'm interested <laughs> in your opinion. It's on Netflix, so I'll probably check it out. It's as good a reason as any. Yeah. Now, you've got the keys. I have Where are the power, uh, and I I was tossing up between two different options here. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I think I am going to take a very unusual route mm. here 
in the sense that I could take any three exits from this film to the next one I'd like to go to. Okay. Um, I have pondered over this because I was very, very much thinking of looking at The Hustler starring Paul Newman, Ooh. which is also mm. Piper Laurie's most recent mm -hmm. film before this one, 1961. Um, mm. But instead, uh, I am going to follow one because I don't want to make it too hard for you next week. I'm going to follow the uh, um, uh, the uh, director, Brian De Palma, mm -hmm. to 1981 Blowout. Ooh. I have never seen this film. Didn't even know it existed. Um, now, this is the... Movie sound recorders accidentally records mm. the evidence that proves that a car accident was actually murder and subsequently mm. finds himself in danger. Mm. So interestingly, is... this film stars John Travolta, Nancy Allen, and is directed by Brian De Palma. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we could have chosen any one of those three, but I will leave two of those for you uh, mm -hmm. available for next week if you need to make an exit. This also stars uh, John Lithgow and Dennis Franz. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure you can be creative with that. Um, I'm already thinking of some places that I can go. Yeah, so um, this is available on Microsoft movie store thing to stream. Mm -hmm. um, so if you feel like watching. Excellent, excellent. Now, um, what should we do next? Shall you I just quickly... talk a little bit Obi-Wan and then we will give uh, yeah. the people what they really want and that's a Trek Respective Part 2. Oh, yeah. We, we've heard we've heard the call the call so obi-wan kenobi his problems just keep on going so this is episode four uh yes um yes yes <laughs> yes i'm really confident yes. about that um and I'm not going to say too much about the story because I don't want to spoil it for people. That's fine. Um, essentially, we have, but like at a high level, Obi-Wan Kenobi is kind of gallivanting around the galaxy, mm -hmm. trying to save Leia and avoid the Inquisitors. Yeah. And that is very much seen this before. Um, and, and unfortunately you've seen it better as well um there's there's something to be said about that the notion of a story of a character and seeing them at their worst and rising back up there that comeback story it's legendary it's it's rocky it's rambo it's so many of sylvester stallone's movies are the the comeback kid kind of story and it is really rewarding to see someone come back from adversity and succeed um the problem is we already know what happens afterwards because of certain little trilogy of movies that came out late 70s early 80s and we know exactly what happens with obi-wan kenobi and so the obi-wan kenobi that we see in a new hope is an old man who is a hermit on a sand planet who doesn't really do anything with the force he's not like he's not that kind of grizzled old fighter that you see in Guy Ritchie movies where he's got scars on his face and he's not like, yeah, he's he's 94 years old, but he can still fuck you up. 
He's Alec Guinness would have been probably a very good casting for the character of Albus Dumbledore, honestly, because he's jovial. He's he, he never comes across as someone who is haunted by the nightmares of a life that we are now being shown in retrospective that Obi-Wan would have had. So seeing him 10 years after <clears throat> the, uh, the Jedi fall, being lost at sea, um, and desert sea, he he's he's broken. He's a broken man, and we're learning that he has more of a connection with Leia than he does Luke. And yet, there was still the, the famous line of "No, oh, there is another" from Yoda. Like, wow. Okay, so. What Obi Wan has got really, really bad memory. There's, there's so many problems that are being created because of them desperately trying to tell more of this story, and every single time they do, it is very much a case of no. The story is in the mystery. That's all. And they're they're over explaining so many of their characters, and it is killing the allure of the characters. And I like Space Jesus. Space Jesus is is a is a cool guy. Ewan McGregor is a cool guy, and he's a good actor. And the character of Obi Wan Kenobi is interesting in his own right. In the prequel um, movies, he's an interesting character who goes on an interesting arc. He's one of the more interesting, one of the few successful parts. Yes, exactly. He's surrounded Kenobi. by shit, but he is the rose amongst the thorns. Um, we don't need this you don't need everything explained it's and it mm, i just don't i don't like it and oh, it, like it's it. it i don't like it it's nothing to do with the direction honestly <clears throat> deborah cho who is the director who um has worked on better call saul american gods mr robot the mandalorian um the Man in the High Castle. She's been involved in some really stellar TV shows. She knows how to direct and showrun this thing. And it overall, it looks good. But... but I, here's the thing. All of those shows had really fucking talented people at the helm. So we take Better Call Saul. You're yeah. working with Vince Gilligan. And he's basically right. I assume Vince does most of it. Well, I've ever... Mm. He writes the episodes where he gives people an overview of what's happening. And they write it like... Yeah. Um, you know, Mandalorian, you're working with John Favreau, right? And really mm -hmm. talent and uh, Dave Filoni. You know, sometimes it's one of those things where people look really good when they're working next to super talent. Catherine, Kathleen Kennedy's another one. Looked fucking great <laughs> when George Lucas was kicking goals. Put her <laughs> in the main seat and she's done nothing but miss. Yeah. Um, so look, I'm not maybe she's not the problem, but maybe it's the writers. Mm. Um, and I'm know, just I looking see. at the writers, and it's uh, Joby Harold and Hannah Friedman, and neither of them have been involved in projects where I go, oh, yeah, the writing was good in that. Joby Harold and here, she did Arthur, the King Arthur movie, which I think might be the uh, uh, Guy Ritchie one there, yep. Army of the Dead, which is a fucking awful movie, mm -hmm. uh, and this. Um, mm -hmm. And he's looking, he's writing... The Flash movie and the Transformers movie, that hasn't uh, 
<laughs> it doesn't bode well. well um, the Flash movie has its own problems. The Flash <laughs> movie is, is a bit cursed at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Hannah Friedman, uh, as a writer, did some stuff. Uh, she created Trolls, and she's doing Willow. Uh, I, not much not I've seen. Anything. Not much of anything that's worth seeing there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yes, uh, interesting mm-hmm. choices. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe they're not the best choices. So... Mm-hmm. It's a bit like when they did the prequels. I mean, years ago, I remember going, I think I've had this conversation with you. Why didn't they, a smarter choice might have been, I think at the time, is to Lucas to write the overview mm-hmm. and then just go to market in 1997 and go, who wants one? Mm. And get John Woo and, I don't know, Quentin Tarantino if you wanted one and maybe Kevin mm. Smith before he started stinking it up as a director. Um you know, to write one, direct one, like whoever else was out and about at the time who was making yeah. interesting cinema, you know. Uh, Robert Rodriguez was really hot in the late 90s, maybe someone like that. I mean, interestingly, now he's directing The Mandalorian, but, like, when he was really hot, coming straight off Desperado and um, At Dust of Dawn, you know, like whoever was out, like, just get the best of the best of the best who wants one and not not the Ryan Johnson types. You go, eh, I don't like Star Wars. I'm going to do my own thing. You know, like just get actual people who understand how to tell a story yeah, as part of a bigger story, preferably. You know, and well, maybe you know, that, that, that whole thing requires them to actually go, okay, we've got an idea for a story. It's going to take place over three movies. This is where the first one starts. This is where the middle one starts. This is where the end one finishes. We just got to get to those goalposts. I, I trust fine. that George Lucas could have done that in the 90s. I have a fairly good idea that he did have that idea in his head. Yeah when he started those prequel films that he knew start middle end of roughly how it was going to go, hmm. you know, filling in the gaps could have been up to somebody else. I'm with you. I yeah. strongly suspect Disney and Kathleen Kennedy and whoever else was in the Lucasfilm did not mm-hmm. have that in place with the nope. sequels, which is, I mean, we just gone over it endlessly, but it is astonishing yes. that they, they got people like Ryan Johnson in and said, just do whatever you want. No, you don't have to pay attention to the first film's storyline yeah. and plot beats. Just do whatever. Um, I'm sure it was great for Ryan. I mean, fuck yeah. Well, who wouldn't say yes to that? Um, yeah. But, like, you know, uh, in the terms of the actual structure of the sequels, it didn't work. So I'm going to go over old ground and I don't want to do that. Yeah. But, like, why don't they just do that now? Like, surely there, are, is, there is incredible talent out there, incredible writers who want to do a Star Wars thing and just go out to them a little bit like, I don't know, I assume Favreau and Filoni just had free reign to do whatever the fuck they wanted, really, with that character. And, that's it. That's the thing is they are doing that now. They are getting these people who are passionate about these projects and saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to birth the Mandalorian. I want to do a Boba Fett thing. I want to do this. I want to do that. But why are they going to these characters that don't fucking need it? Yes, there is always going to be the, a crowd of people who are like, oh, I want to know the lost years of Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's like, okay. But it's better for the character if you simply don't know, or if we learn that through another character where Obi-Wan Kenobi only briefly appears here and there. And you can introduce whole new characters in a literal universe of people. It is not just populated by 13 characters. You can come up with someone new. That would take guts. So I'm taking it then, you're not mm. really digging it. No. 
No, I'm genuinely not. I'm disappointed with it because I like, like I said, I like you and McGregor. Um, I like most of the characters. Um, Vivian Lyra Blair, who plays Leia, is, I'm presuming, purposefully obnoxious. And I just hate the character. I hope that's the point. But I don't quite see why. Um, but it that's that's just obnoxiously difficult to get over. But everything else, the the quality of the production looks good. The quality of the special effects looks good. It's going back to that. Oh yeah, remember all of this cool stuff? Rather than going, hey, remember that cool universe? We're going to tell you a new story in that world. And they've been able to do that. The success of Star Wars uh, Jedi Fallen Order. They've got a sequel. And people really loved that story. I thought it was rather boring. But it was, you know, people really liked it. And it was a new story. That like had... the Republic. People love that. Yeah. They're making so another they, one, apparently. They have, the, they have the rich source material. They have that canon, which they are now selectively picking from. Why are they anyway? I'm going to repeat it myself. I'm goldfish yeah, holding. Not a fan. No, no. This is should definitely we... a two thumbs down show for me. Should we then mm. to a more hopeful universe? Yes, let's do that. Let me see. So we have part two of our Trek respective waiting <gasps> to go. We've been teasing it for too long. People are desperate. They're ravenous. But I've, I've had a number of people come up to me this week and ask me about it. That may or may <laughs> not be true. It may have been just one person. Uh, let's bring this up. Oh, we even got them side by side. Look at that. Technology. And my goodness, you are on the on the deck of... I, it's a special trailer from... How... Where did Special you get the favorite from Robert Kirkman. I, didn't, I don't remember authorizing this budget. Friend of a show, Robert Kirkman. Um, uh, and the, uh, from what again, you've the guys that, said about him, he is not a friend of the show. The guys of Bad Robot were more than happy to help. <laughs> All right. Welcome to the second episode of Trek Respective with myself and the lovely Michelle, who's currently on a five year journey. Uh, to boldly go where she's never gone before and enjoy the Star Trek over 13 films. And last week, you would have watched this, heard us talk about Star Trek Emotion Picture. This week, we had the pleasure of going to possibly the strongest entry in the uh, in the series, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. With the the strongest entry? Strongest entry. Well, look, that's oh. arguable. arguable. Um, but some might make that argument. Certainly, I would say generally agree to be the strongest of the original series films. Okay, okay. With the assistance of the Enterprise crew, Admiral Kirk must stop an old nemesis, Khan, Nuni and Singh, from using the life-generating Genesis device as the ultimate weapon. Uh, this is a follow-on from a, an episode of the original series uh, titled Space Seed. Uh, stars, of course, the usual cast, along with a couple of additions, the uh, incomparable Ricardo Montalban as Khan uh, and a yeah, very young Kirstie Alley as Sabi. I know, so young. So I wonder if Scientology had gotten to her by then. Scientology, before Cheers, 
before she lost her shit and became a crazy person. Um, what what are you? What was your take on uh, Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan? So let me start off by saying thank the universe for The Simpsons because all my references to Star Trek that I've had until now have been through The Simpsons. So I got a little bit more of those Simpsons jokes coming through when I was watching it and thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, what else was really interesting about it? Loved what Khan had going on. I mean, you go into your wardrobe, you get a sassy V, low V-neck, you know, you want some 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 white teased teased hair and that that fringe. Oh, he had his look rocking. Um, like unity, what is he a genetically yeah. modified? He was a genetically modified being from a twentieth century or twenty first century. Uh, he'd been locking uh, his you know what like space sleep thing you know uh, until they were discovered by the Enterprise in the spacey TV show episode. Well, you got to have your wardrobe on point if you're going to be genetically modified being. I'm just saying, he's got it on point. And, and I think they did look like extras from a mid-80s um, Tina Turner video. I think it's a fair case statement, you know. I was thinking, um, you know, David Bowie or something, but you were saying that came out after this. So I'm like, maybe David Bowie during... Oh, you, you noticed a bit of a resemblance in, a, in a, uh, the, the wardrobe to the uh, David Bowie Labyrinth film. Mm. Uh, yes, Labyrinth came out in 1986. This came out in 1982. Well, it's good to know that in the 25th century. Yes? Yes, yeah, so the 23rd, I think. 23rd century, people are still teasing their hair. Yes, well, and especially considering they were on a desert planet at the start of a film, and, you know, they, they're glad they were supplied with it hair. It gets dry. you got to moisturise and tease, you know. Hair products were provided, obviously, along with food and water and, you know, um, the Mad Max films, um, probably. Uh, by okay, let me consider the plot a little bit. The plot was a little bit more interesting, and William Shatner has a way of pronouncing words which is just both endearing and amusing so i i did enjoy that aspect of it i enjoyed a bit of the romance between him and spock i can see why people ship them constantly there's a <laughs> lot of there's a lot of love and yet not love and and um consideration and and looks between each other um i mean you can definitely ship khan and kirk i'm telling you that as well we i i know for me this term ship you could you ship you ship you're shipping like relationshiping okay. characters from movies that don't necessarily you're, present you're, as such you're a bit too hip for me i've never heard that term before <laughs> so um uh what's a famous shipping one apart because i know kirk and spock have been shipped quite a bit um well it's not i've heard it described as slash fiction in in you know that people write their own short stories well, you know, and they recreate the characters. I mean, a famous example of that is um, what became um, Fifty Shades of Grey started out as slash Yes, fiction, of course, um, it's fan, Twilight. Twilight fan fiction. So from bad to worse. I mean, you know. But did you, were you not moved? Were you moved at all to this film? It's, it's um, uh, interestingly, you noted that you randomly, a couple of days after watching this, on Netflix landed on a Seinfeld episode, uh, season eight, I think. Eight, was episode one um and um it there was it was all the plot of that episode revolved around um star trek 2 of a of khan and had a great line with george doing his own khan 
Um, I've been doing that all day. Whenever, like today, I was cleaning the floors and it, I couldn't get a spot out, and I was like, "Come!" It feels good. Um, it feels good. It feels good. But um, even in that episode, Steinfeld, Steinfeld episode, they're like, "Oh, it was a real thing when Spock died." I think it was a, it was a, almost a, a defining moment in in Sinner in the early eighties. Did you feel anything at that moment? You know what I feel like? I feel like this would have been a big deal when it came out, but it didn't quite move me as much. It's a I great think what line I, of, I have been and always will be your friend. <laughs> yeah, but we know he comes back. I mean, I've got what eleven movies of this. Yeah, Spock's only four more of them, though. Really? Yes. I thought Spock and Kirk were in all of them. Uh, Kirk is only in five more of them. Hmm. Okay. So you go. You got some new. Well, meanwhile, Kirk is in more than that. And so, sorry, I am incorrect. The characters are in more films. They're only in a certain number more. There was still a lot of glancing. They could really cut down the glancing. Um, How much glancing is there in space? I mean, there's a lot of looks and uh, glances and gazing and. Um, aside from um, imagining a romance between the two characters. Um, was there anything else you enjoyed about the plot, or were you finding yourself? Uh, I got it. Uh, the, last week? the little ear things turned my stomach. Oh, the ears, yes, at the start of a film, the earwig worms. Yeah, it did remind me of an X Files episode where they're um in like Antarctica or the Arctic or something in some sort of base, and there's this little alien thing that wiggles inside their brain through their ears and that freaked me out so that was that was interesting like that little monster in the um <laughs> what are those cheese things called with the glass cheese things i'm thinking of a clit but that's not quite right anyway that it's monster in the cheese. no it's not fondue no 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 it's like a bell like a cheese bell. Anyway. Oh, you mean those, those liquid cheese fountains? No, 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 no. So anyway, there was a little, that little animal in that thing. That was quite gross. Um, so did it move me? No. Did it gross me out? Yes. Um, did it amuse me? enjoy it, potentially? Yeah, I enjoyed this one more. At least stuff happened. But I did feel myself going, oh. This is a shorter film. This is about 20 minutes shorter than the last one. Yeah. But you still think, yeah. um, you actually made an interesting point while we were watching this. There's a scene. I'm glad you're reminding me of my interesting point. Um, but you, there was a section of a film where the Khan's crew has visited the star base, tortured and killed a number of people who are working there in order to try and get the whereabouts of a Genesis weapon. Um, and and we, we experienced this through Kirk later arriving at the star base and finding the bodies. Mm. You made the interesting observation that that would have been far more interesting to have actually seen Khan oh, yes. doing that. Khan and his crew arrive at the starbase, even if you didn't want to show the torture, you know, arriving That's at the starbase. Right. It was so expositiony. There was a bit of exposition in the middle of the film, and that was that was actually a really good observation. I've never thought of that before. But I'm like, that would have been cool to have actually seen. It's probably a budgeting issue, to be completely honest. Could have been budgeting. Could have been yeah. Could have been time. That kind of thing. Um, I think what I'm realizing about these films is how much 
cultural capital they've amassed and how much they've influenced what's come after because it's also actually reminding me a little bit of serenity that description of finding the bodies on the ship and all the rest of it if you remember the rivers on um one of the episodes of firefly there's something similar to that as well i have no doubt that um, so i've already mentioned so many things of the deeply simpsons and, and these sorts of things and, and you will find that this the the legacy of this film is felt throughout the rest of the the series in the sense it was so well received i guess also the diversity their actors are diverse which is important i always think but i don't know i just i think i'm a little bit heartened with this because i've held out for so long and sure this is only my second movie I've held out for so long and I've gone, this is in the no view list. You know, I have a no view list that includes Tom Cruise um, for, for many reasons, um, unless he's not Tom Cruise in it, like Tropic Thunder, you know, I'll allow Tropic Thunder. But anyway, so Star Trek was in my no, no view list and now I'm starting to look and I'm like, this has a legacy such a legacy in popular culture and i'm actually disappointed that it's actually not more impressive for the legacy that it has yeah it's fair i mean i think this film is still a fine movie um but i think also you're seeing them out of time yeah but i've also seen the godfather out of time because i don't think know, anyone really honestly compares star trek to the godfather no but in terms of cultural legacy Yes, I suppose. I don't think they're on the same same level as that. I just um, uh, I it, people like but stuff. They they do have a lot of cultural cachet. Oh, it does. I mean, as you said, the, the, the Simpsons has ripped it off. There's been an entire Seinfeld episode about it. Um, it's it's iconic. And uh, also, they don't explore the whole sun thing very well in the Wrath of Khan. They don't. But more so you've got Kirk, who has a mentoring father relationship with Cast. It's very much at the beginning life, before before he killed Khan's you know wife and whatever. He didn't go. Uh, I didn't <laughs> see it that way. Don't get ahead of yourself. There was going to be more of that in the next film. Remember what I said last week. This is Khan two three four is very much a trilogy inside the series. So the second this is only the first film of that trilogy. I guess you'll find. I, I have to be honest though. If you didn't enjoy this one. It's going to be a rough ride from here <laughs> because I don't think they like you might find four, four and six are worth a look. Didn't Seinfeld argue that three is the better one? Kramer at one point was trying to argue that Star, Star Trek three search for Spock was better. Um, but I, I, it's a comedy show for a reason. And mm. Michael Richards is a very funny man. Uh, so um, you gave last week, you gave Star Trek emotion picture about a three out of 10. Seven lockdowns out of ten. Seven lockdowns out of ten. So around about a three out of ten if we go a traditional sort of scale. What do you what do you think, Rafa Khan? Did it improve in that much? A little bit. Like I'd give it five lockdowns out of ten. Five so it's about a five out of ten period. So we're right in the middle of a road. Yeah, I, I thought that a lot more could have been done. And it's just these movies so far haven't been good at tying character to theme which I think is actually the hallmark of a, when the movie, when a movie actually manages to do that, I think you're onto something really interesting and important. 
like I'll give you a, a rough and ready example, which I haven't seen, but we were talking about this maybe a month ago about Coda. So you've got a girl who's a hearing girl coming from deaf parents who translates the world, who is a singer. So sounds the theme and communication and all the rest of it. And you're seeing it through characterization, you're seeing it through plot, and you're seeing it through theme. Do you know what I mean? And that's might be a simple story, but it's a story that ties all of those things together. And I'm just seeing none of the, and Star Wars actually, believe it or not, if we're gonna sort of compare oranges with oranges, does this much better than Star Trek, which I think is what made Star Wars way more popular than Star Trek. Star Trek was just simply more accessible. No, I actually disagree with you there. No, I don't think it's a case of it being more accessible. I think that it does storytelling better than Star Trek, and that's really what it comes down okay, to. I can't disagree with the original trilogy did. Um, these films, I think, I think Rafa Khan's a great film, uh, despite its flaws, and I think its themes of friendship uh, are done very well. And the signposts. How old were you when you first saw it? Very young, under ten. Okay. Seven or eight. But I'm not here to argue with you. We are here to your your opinions as a Trek noob. You can argue with me. I don't know. Oh, look, I mean, we want people who watch Trek. They know I like. They know what I like. They know I'm a fan. So it's very predictable that I like it. But it is interesting hearing the um. <laughs> thoughts from a new person who's brand new to, to the series so thank you for watching this week we'll be back next week to talk about star trek 3 the search for spock and don't cut off my extra exit this time george back to you there we go we're back and <laughs> oh, travis <laughs> you're having it served i was i was dissing carrie and then you had to deal with someone lambasting your beloved Wrath of Khan. <laughs> oh, it was expected, though. Like, well, slightly expected. Like, I mean, um, it's speaking of films that are a little out of time. So um, true, parts, true. parts of the early Star Trek films have started to age. As good as the storyline behind Wrath of Khan is, um, there are a lot of very lingering, still even this film, a lot of lingering shots Mm. on the enterprise kind of going oh how cool does it look and you're like not that cool we're uh, impressive <laughs> by the way for those who um were wondering what mm. the f we were talking about and michelle in particular was talking about with the cheese thing we figured it out while we were uh, uh watching this week's trek respective if you put that up for me george we can show you what we're talking about it's a cloche a cloche. a cloche okay a glass dome so that is what we were talking about is the ladies and gentlemen let, let it be said that we are not alone when it comes to getting, getting distracted, lost oh, get distracted. <laughs> um can, can i segue quick i'm sorry these are taking longer yes. than we thought they would we'll try and no, keep it on time but we we get segued um so um because i'm a good sport and i'm a nice guy um every week after we watch uh our um trek film of the week mm -hmm. so this week it'll be star trek 3. um we get i am kind enough to give it's not like i have a saying it michelle gets to pick a, a palate cleanser <laughs> um so uh this week's palate cleanser is um bridget jones diary bridget jones's diary now, I this is a very famous movie. 
Like, yeah. um, I remember it coming out, what a big deal the Bridget Jones films were, and it's like an iconic role for Renee Zellweger. I never saw it. Um, because it just didn't look like the kind of film for me. I mean, honestly, they kind of look like chick flicks. Um, and wow, it, this movie is 21 years 21 old. 21 years old, right? I had no idea. I would have given it oh, 15 max. My God. Good and here's the thing. It feels every one of them. <laughs> uh, so Bridget Jones is determined to approve herself while she looks for love in a year in which she keeps a personal diary. Mm. The titular character, as I mentioned, uh, Bridget Jones, played by Renee Zellweger. Uh, her two main love interests are played by Hugh Grant as Daniel Cleaver. Colin mm -hmm. Firth plays Mark Darcy. Uh, mm -hmm. Gemma Jones plays her mum. And Jim Broadbent plays her dad. And mm -hmm. there are probably a few other familiar faces popping up throughout. Probably the only one that was really yeah. weird was Summer Rushdie playing himself. <laughs> I um, forgot that happened. Uh, I had no idea. Apparently, someone, someone rushed you. Almost got kind of sort of me tooed. Um, what we call Josh, uh, and his ex-wife <laughs> said he was kind of a douche after they split up. So you have mm. to take him seriously now as someone That's worth tough. seeing. But this film is mm. really kind of problematic and really fucking dated, like yeah. really dated. Um, so. Uh, the film starts at a Christmas party with her for her mum, okay, Bridget's mum holds, and at mm -hmm. that party she bumps into someone I think she vaguely knows, uh, Mark Darcy, played by Colin Firth, who's wearing yeah. a very ugly re uh, reindeer jumper. At this party, uh, Bridget's lamenting how you know, pathetic and lonely and sad her single life is, and the desperate mm. and dateless kind of cliche she has. Mm. She sort of spouts verbal diarrhea at Mark Darcy in an effort to sort of make half drunken conversation. He's had none of it. She later overhears him talking to her, talking to his mum about how <laughs> she has, she sort of spouts, he basically says he spouts verbal diarrhea and not terribly impressive. Um, which, and she's decided to take that personally. Mm -hmm. um, Bridget works um, as a, uh, for a publishing firm. So she's mm -hmm. on her way to being a plucky young advertising executive, which I think... <gasps> a plucky young advertising executive. My goodness, <laughs> how unique. And she be <laughs> ends up becoming a plucky young TV star instead. But, you know, <gasps> one can dream. <laughs> but her you boss too can is, make it to Hollywood. Her boss is played by Hugh Grant, as said. He plays Daniel Cleaver. He plays, he plays a really great sleazy arsehole. I've got to pay it. Like, yeah. I think yeah. his best role is him playing a sleazy arsehole. Yeah, um, that's fair. Uh, I'm fair I haven't seen all of his work, but he works in this one. And she starts flirting back and forth with him uh, via email at work. So mm -hmm. two, the two most shocking things for this film for me was, one, the amount of smoking in this film is really overwhelming. Like, mm -hmm. you don't realise how little you see it these days. Yeah. Like, it's smoking, unless it's a period film. If it's yeah. a period film, it's different. Um, but in a contemporary film, seeing characters smoking indoors, it's really rare. Yeah. If indoors, like, really, like, I was like, oh, guys, <laughs> everyone smokes in this film. And I'm like, uh, and that was only 21 years ago. And you, everyone was totally cool to smoke indoors. Like, I assume, I, I, you may not, I assume smoking indoors in the UK is no longer in restaurants and shit. He's not longer a 
a thing. Yeah, it was it was not a thing like by certainly not not a thing of smoking indoors while I was still there that I remember of. Um I think it But um but that's shocking. So yeah, I guess that's just the cultural thing. We don't smoke indoors anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um and you just don't I guess as a Hollywood thing, you do, you just don't have your characters smoking so much anymore. Like unless I guess yeah. I said it's a period film. Yeah. Um the other thing in this is the sexual harassment is rampant. Yeah. Like, can you imagine like a major Hollywood production portraying, you know, uh, a, a boss basically picking up his, his flirting with his uh, co-worker, his underling, mm -hmm. his assistant via email as being a completely sort of innocent sort of thing? Yeah, no. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm be stretching it, calling it innocent. It's it's kind of played off as playful. It's a mm. welcome. The, the flirting is welcome mm. by Bridget. She likes it. But still, there is that, the bit that comes into any contract that you ever read about, you cannot fraternise with some uh, people um, who you would either directly report to or report on. It's, like, it's, the, it's the power differential between the two, which is yes. what makes that troublesome. And then there's actual scenes where he, we're in the lift together and he's like literally groping her, um, yeah. Yeah, grabbing her ass and stuff. And you're like, again, she's okay with it. She quite thinks he's quite handsome and it's okay and that kind of thing. But you come back again about power differential. Um, mm -hmm. Seriously, like, and that actually, I mean, I, I'm going to go a bit woke now, so I'm sorry for everybody who <gasps> tunes in for those star criticisms of woke culture we used to do. Um, but the idea of toxic masculinity is a thing, right? Like you hear it a lot. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say it's fake. They're wrong. Um, you know, but like the idea is imagine if you're a young dude, right? And you're 10 in mm -hmm. 2001, you see this movie and this cool, hot guy in Hugh Grant, charming, rich, man. successful. He gets the girl sort of by being a complete sleaze bag and flirting with her every email and grabbing her bits in the lift and stuff like that. Now, of course, she's attracted to him, so she's cool with it in a sense. But, like, again, mm -hmm. we've talked about the, the, the power differential. But you're like, is this, is this how I think, how young guys, like a lot of young guys, end up thinking that kind of thing's okay? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like you or I growing up seeing Han Solo grab um, Princess Leia in Empire Strikes Back and kiss her when she doesn't want to be kissed, right? Like, just mm -hmm. after she called him a nerf herder or something, right? Like, um this is what Hollywood tells us is okay. This is what women want. Women want men to be strong and decisive and grab them. And just, mm -hmm. you know, this leads to problems later on. So if you're one of those people who goes, it's not real, it's fake or whatever, I think give some thought to that idea. I think this is what people mean yes. when they're talking about toxic masculinity is the stuff like Hugh Grant's character in here being a complete mm -hmm. prick. 100%. And look, okay, shocker. He doesn't get the girl at the end of the day. She ends up. <gasps> she gets Mark Colin Firth, despite being a complete wet blanket and a blank page throughout most of the film. He is very <laughs> handsome and rich, so that stands him in good stead. Uh, he yep. is not a sleazy cunt, fortunately. He ends no. up getting together with Bridget at the end of the film, so he not so much. But he gets to sleep with a lot of very pretty women along the way, and you kind of like. I can see a lot of young dudes kind of going. I'm okay with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
Now, I'm not saying it's the right attitude to have. I'm just saying it's a real one. Um, so it's so much worse. The other thing that's kind of um, shocking or jarring about this is the constant insinuation that Renee Zellweger is fat or plus size in this film. Yeah. And I remember um, Michelle was telling me some stories about the, the, the gist of the film was, or one of the stories out of the production of the film was, Renee Zellweger had to gain 25 pounds to take the role. Yeah. Twenty-five um, pounds on a small frame. But she doesn't look fat by any stretch of the no. imagination. Like I think just to even to try and sell her as the polite term these days we use is, you know, plus sized. Mm. Um to try and sell her as plus size is just, no. I'm sorry, really no. She looks still very, very svelte in this film. Maybe yeah. with a tiny little bit of curve to her in parts that she doesn't normally have mm -hmm. as being a fairly mm -hmm. thin person. Um, and you just like, wow, wow. Yeah. No way is she fat or plus size, but they keep telling you she is. Yep. Um, and again, you want to talk about body image issues. If you're mm -hmm. a 10 year old girl now and you grow up watching this film and you see Renee Selwig and you go, oh, that's fat. Mm -hmm. So this is a deeply problematic film. Yeah, uh, this is not the harmless little rom com that it sells itself as. I think mm -hmm. um, it's entertaining. It's fine. It's mm -hmm. basically a, a loose remake of Pride and Prejudice. They didn't yep. try very hard, and you know, the character's name is Darcy. You know, uh, Mr. Darcy. So yeah, <laughs> it didn't. That didn't take a great deal of creativity. I assume it was out of copyright when the uh, when Helen Fielding wrote the novel. So good luck to us. Yeah. But, I, I did see Pride and Prejudice. I did see Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. So you know, I mean, it's not the film that's got. It's it's a more um, faithful treatment than um, than perhaps that film was. Um, it's yeah. it's pretty average, though. I mean, look, uh, yeah. I suspect most of the pleasure people get from it these days would be nostalgia. Mm -hmm. if you saw it twenty one years ago, but and you mm -hmm. know you enjoyed it, um, yeah, or for me, like me, you just kind of shock <laughs> the fact that only 21 years ago, all of that was okay. Now, what I'm curious about is with the Trek perspective going on, are we going to get you watching the Bridget trilogy? I doubt it. Um, uh, at least, um, like I said, I, I'm... I Michelle just... owes me a couple of bad movies for, for some <laughs> of the Well, see, when I break so... it, I, this is a bad movie um <laughs> so look i think visa michelle's choice to a large degree she did try and have throwing the actual pride and prejudice movie is one i was gonna have oh to the um kira knightley one i guess so i think colin firth was in the tv show not the movie if i'm not yes. mistaken mm. um so i'm guessing the kira knightley version i, I didn't mm. ask other than to say no thank you please no don't stop please uh it's not I, bad i hated the pride and prejudice and zombies i my friend who i went and saw who was quite keen on the book thought it was very funny um but even with zombies <laughs> i thought it was quite dull um but yes so it'll be her call i don't think she's a massive fan of the sequels um so uh you know i i don't know that we're going to she's not doing this to hurt me she's just doing this to, to wash the taste of star trek out of her mouth michelle as a birthday present, as a belated birthday present, please at least 
get him to uh, just because it'll break continuity, just Bridget Jones's baby. Well, apparently it's a bit of a river too. Bridget Jones in the Edge of Reason has a 5.9. And yeah. Bridget Jones' baby has a 6.5. Mm. Um, and in, in Cavell's Mc, uh, McSteeny, Patrick, De- Patrick Dempsey, um, instead of Huge Grunt. Um, <laughs> um, so, look, that's that's my uh, my little uh, twist into rom-com this weekend. Okay. Richard, Richard Curtis has done much, much better. I don't this. think Richard Curtis actually had anything to do with he this. He did. He wrote it. He has a writing credit for his film. Oh, dear, Richard. Oh, dear. That's, yeah. That's why. Are you, you're not getting out from under this one, Mr. Curtis. Yeah. Um, I, um, uh, yesterday was a film he wrote a few years ago. I liked that one. Um, oh, yes. And even, even yes. The Boat That Rocked, Four Weddings and a Funeral, he's done better work. Yeah. Okay. You want to talk to us about the boys, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Let's it talk about the boys. Completely changed tone. Perfect palate cleanser for Bridget Jones's diary. So, as Travis talked and lauded about last week, the boys is the Amazon Prime adaptation of the Gareth Ennis um, written comic series of said name, The Boys, about a world where there are superheroes and they are fucking crazy and psychopathic and broken in so many ways. Um, oh, uh, Michelle has just gone into the chat and said, next week is Rocky Four. Rocky Four. There's a story oh. behind that. So tuning for, I think we mentioned it last week during uh, retrospective there. So uh, mm-hmm. there is actually a story which I'm sure we'll, we'll repeat during next week's trip. Fantastic. I must um, yeah, going back to so um, I heard, I didn't, re- I realized that I didn't actually watch all of season two. So I decided to catch up. So I watched half the second half of season two and everything that's been released to season three so far. And that's wow, a it's a lot. I did it in the space of a day and it was amazing and terrible in intentional manner um it ticks every box that you didn't realize you wanted ticked and it skirts so delightfully on the side of absurdity in every possible scenario that you can't help but think the, the the writers of this, the creators of the show, Eric Kripke, the showrunner, he is just kind of going, yep, I know exactly what you're expecting and I know exactly what you want without you even knowing it and I'm going to do just that. Just just going to twist you just a little bit. And it's, it's really quite wonderfully done. In, the, in this season, in the season three we're in now, and they've also just been greenlit for season four. Um, we are picking up with um, the after effects of quite literally a Nazi superhero um, and their downfall and the repercussions that has on Homelander and how 
how twisted he goes and fuck he goes just when you listen last goes. week just when you think he's got him you've seen how twisted he's gonna get he finds new depths yeah he is so broken as a human being and he he is probably the best villain that is currently on tv it's a pretty big statement but i don't think i can disagree with it it's it's hard to disagree because he's just in every single way he makes the perfect worst decision on everything and those moments like the way where he does the, the it's his birthday celebration and he does the impromptu speech and you're kind of thinking oh maybe this is the ter- tide turning and that's not what happens and it's like oh fuck this is this is like donald trump this is this is just the the worst parts of society backing the person with the loudest voice and it's like oh shit we are giving the wrong person more power and it just plays it so well whereas um i can't remember what it was i think i don't think it was last week but it was a week before um where we were talking about something that had a lot of trumpism kind of attitude put into it and it it felt very forced this is just playing on that idea and it just just hints at it just enough without it being kind of like oh really you're, so you're going if we think of um something like say the the villain in um wonder woman 1984 um yeah you know, pedro pascal's character and that was very trump-esque but kind of like look i get it he's a cunt and he's pretty easy to make a villain out of but could you do it more artfully yeah yeah um with, but with homelander he it's nuanced performance and you do see this certain level of struggle to him and it even even sequences like at the towards the end of season two where he gets flowers for um stormbreaker is it stormbreaker yeah stormfront um stormfront thank you um and he's just waiting in her trailer for ages you you do feel a little bit of sympathy for him just 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 a touch but then you just go nah fuck it he doesn't deserve my sympathy and it feels rewarding to take that step and just go nope don't care he's he's a fucking cunt he's a terrible terrible person i hate this guy so much um and then on the opposite side of that we've got the titular boys and just to go back exactly over what travis was saying carl urban's bloody fabulous how good is he he's so good he's so damn good he is lovable when he's being an asshole he is scary he is endearing the relationship that he has with um with his wife's kid and how he kind of boxes things up in his mind and deals with one thing then another and so like okay i've got to shut this down to get the result that i need because i need to be able to do this bad thing without it coming back on people that i care about and he's incredibly pragmatic but still very much with the the talent of carl's performance you see him struggling with every decision that he makes whereas it is the perfect opposite to home uh um uh, Fuck, what's his name? 
yes, Homelander, thank you. Um, where he just sees it and just goes, yep, cool, perfect, perfect reasoning. I will do this bad thing because I am justified. Whereas um, Butcher, he struggles with that societal weight of it. He knows that he's not a good guy and he knows that bad things will come because of what he is doing, but he does ultimately justify it for the greater good. The greater good. The greater good. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of like you know. What he, it weirdly reminds me a little bit of Jack Nicholson's character from A Few Good Men. You know, and our world has walls, and men with guns need to stand on those walls. You know. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it's a strange link, but that's just kind of what it makes me think of. Sometimes. No, there's, de there's of definitely that to it. Yeah. Um, but this is just a joy to watch. It's it's not easy to watch. But it's if, violent and disgusting. Yeah. You mentioned earlier you may not want to eat initially before mm -hmm. some of these scenes. I'm just going to say the first scene starring the termite in episode one of season three. I mean, it was the scene that every Marvel fan wanted to see, but we're never going to get to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the scene with the deep and Timothy. Yep. Uh, was uh, that was that was insanely horrifying. Like one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen. So yeah. and yeah. it really wasn't that gross, right? No. I mean we've we've seen someone go through through that with old boy, and that was horrible and disgusting. And but the it was the conversation and the dread around that dinner, which was even worse. And the deep's wife sending the text message and things like that you it, considering how much of a shit a genuine shit the deep is you can't help but feel sorry for him in that scenario and it's, it's masterwork and that's why I'm, yeah. I'm like i hope they've got enough story for season four like i don't know how yeah. many comic books they're out of basis on how much content they got from that but like so far season three hasn't mm. run out of steam um for me so i'm very glad you hear you enjoyed it as well mm. yeah no it's it's genuinely brilliant the special effects are fantastic um the story is in, intelligently written and smart in its way of using comedy and parody it is constructed in a way that in the way that the best parody and farce should be and you can't help but take it seriously whilst being disgusted and entertained at the same time that's that's its magic it's brilliant well um, if you've got prime that's it's a good yeah. reason to get prime like it's fucking great there are only 72 issues of the comic for context so that's not a so, lot for four scenes of no. telly. I don't know exactly how yeah. much, how big they are, how much they need to stretch those comic books to go, you know, a, a, a one or two episodes or that. Yeah, I don't know. Have a, you know, how much of that content yeah. you've eaten up. We sure as fuck, we do not want them to do a Game of Thrones and run no. out of run out of source material and get talentless hacks from the outside in to come in and just go, you know. This would do. <laughs> Like I haven't seen it, but I hear all the time about how crap the last season of that was. Oh, it's trash! It's trash. You Martin don't need to written yet. And I was based on George R. R. Martin. Like he, I believe, explaining to him what he wanted or what he was planning for his last book. 
mm-hmm. still hasn't written uh, or released, no. I should note. Um, so, shall we move on? Yeah, let's move on. Let's um, do you want to tell me about uh, Roadrunner? Roadrunner. I will quick, I'll do a bit of a nitro on those two. Um, okay. The Roadrunner is a documentary about the filmmaker, uh, sorry, the chef, writer, TV host, uh, general rapper, Anthony Bourdain. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If uh, you're not familiar with Anthony Bourdain, he was all those things. He was initially a very well known chef who mm-hmm. uh, sort of broke out after writing um, a book. Um, uh, forget the name of the book, so the, the chef's journey or something like that. Um, someone's going to mm-hmm. tell me because I've, I've completely forgotten what it is. But I have never read it, but what I knew Anthony Bourdain from was after that, that, um, uh, that book came out, um, he sort of became a very well known writer and began mm-hmm. with um, a couple of TV, very well known TV shows, uh, mm. Anthony Bourdain, No Reservation, Parts Unknown. Um, mm. uh, he, believe it or not, they turned his book, Kitchen Confidential was the name of a book. Notable, okay. I think, I, I'm sure it's a great book. I am kind of curious to kind of get a copy and read it, but it was okay. turned into a TV show. Like okay. not like a nonfiction TV. So most of his TV shows are nonfiction. Him traveling to a country and exploring the, the cuisine and the culture a little bit. It was turned into an actual sitcom, starring Bradley Cooper in two thousand and six. Oh. Okay, uh, I have not been able to find terribly many full episodes. You can find some clips on YouTube, and you're like, "Wow, this looks like shit." Yeah. <laughs> Um, but fascinating that um, that Bradley Cooper played Anthony Bourdain uh, almost 15, you know, 16 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Parts Unknown is the one that the show where you can find it also on, um, on on Amazon. And it'd be like you go to like a country, like the one I've seen, he's gone to Argentina, goes to Buenos Aires, he meets some of the locals, tries to cuisine, mm-hmm. he sort of explores the nature of a, the, of a culture of a city, but the character of a country um and sort of tries to dip his toe into it a little bit and give you it's always sort of cross between a a cookie food show and a travel guide yeah um he even went to um the antarctic Antarctic. he gets gets to go around i mean there's um some interesting footage in this um from he was in uh, beirut when a major israeli attack on on lebanon took place so he gets around. So this is a fairly, this is an interesting little documentary um, mm. directed by a friend of his named Morgan Neville. And mm-hmm. it's sort of, um, it's sort of a cross between a, biopi- bio, a biography and an autobiography because a lot of it is using his own words. Mm. Uh, so interviews and footage uh, telling stories about where he came from and how he came up mm. in the cooking industry and, you know, how he got started, how he sort of wrote this book. And then all of a sudden, that transition into television not something he ever expected to do but it goes mm. a little deeper than his career it actually looks into who he was as a man and what mm. motivated him um famously he was an addict for a long time a heroin addict for many many years um mm. he had a number of different relationships he we, the film starts with him and his childhood sweetheart he's his first wife um and uh move through the end of their relationship as his um uh tv career takes off and his mm. second relationship and the birth of his daughter with 
um, Otavia, Otavia Busia or Otavia Bourdain. I don't know if she uses Bourdain anymore because she was not married to him when he passed. Hmm. Um, but she uh, was an Italian chef, now an hmm. MMA fighter. So there's an interesting career transition. Um, I got into too many fights in the kitchen, and now these do all the cooking I need. Say, so, like, uh, she's actually a fascinating character in the story. Yeah. Um, and you know, we explore his his evolution into a parent, a, a role that he doesn't seem to have ever really saw himself in through hmm. that relationship with Atavia, then to uh, his final relationship with Asia, um, Asia Argento, Dario Argento's daughter. Um, if you're a fan of George Romero, you might remember her. She was the female lead in Land of the Dead. Um, and he's an, a filmmaker of some note of making shitty horror films herself. Um, and he ended up killing himself in 2018. Um, very suddenly yeah. and unsurprisingly. So this is a really interesting little doco. If you have to be a massive fan of Anthony Bourdain to enjoy it. I'm not a massive fan, but he's a fascinating man. I kind of wish he was still alive now. Like he, mm. he's just mm. somebody like I could listen to him talk for hours. He always seems like he'd have something interesting to say, an interesting take on things. Um, but I guess what was really interesting for me was the, the characterization of a man who had a hole inside of him mm. and spent, from what I can tell, mm. a very good portion of his adult life looking for something to fill that hole with. Mm. I don't yeah. know if you know um, these people who have to achieve. There's always something that has to be done, the next thing. Um, so he was, you know, he came up from nothing to be a very well-known chef. I don't think he was quite, yeah. you know, Michelin starred or anything like that. But he worked in some of the best kitchens in the world when there's friends with some of the greatest chefs on earth. And he mm. so he became even decided, I'm going to write books. I mean, he, you know, he started writing. He wrote Kitchen Confidential, became a mega bestseller and, Maybe selling millions and millions of copies of that book and the many others. Okay, he's a writer. Okay, next mm. he's offered this gig to start doing his TV shows. And what do you know? He's massively successful at his TV mm. show. Um, he has his first wife, and he's been successful for that for a while until he destroys it and gets married again. When he's with mm -hmm. Otavia, as talked about, he actually became very, very good, I think, at jujitsu and won mm. medals and stuff, won, won competitions at jujitsu until he just stopped doing that. And then started doing something else. In amongst all this, you've got heroin. Um, yeah. Towards the end of his life, he was incredibly passionate. Up, some might even say you know, over the top in his support of the Me Too movement. Um, mm. Asia uh, claimed to have been raped by uh, Harvey Weinstein at Cannes, I think, in 2000. So she was a victim. Um, and I think one of the early people who spoke out as part of a Me Too movement, and I'm not dissing the Me Too movement. I'm just saying that he was incredibly over the top in support of that. It was probably as one should be of their wife, but mm. like the stories in the documentary about people who'd said something 10, 15 years earlier that now didn't, ref you wouldn't say now, right? Kind of thing, a mm. joke or something. And he's like, no, nope, cutting him out. Mm. Um, so what that really spoke to me about pe people who just, uh, maybe you know people like this as well, who just have this hole inside them and nothing can fill it. And their mm. entire life is a quest to try and find something to fill that hole inside themselves. Drugs, women, success, money, power, to a degree. Um, yeah. None of it was enough for him. Yeah. None of it was enough. He was just, and there's actually this great line at the end about 
he just kept running. He always had to run. And he eventually mm. he was gonna, you know, when he stopped running away from whatever this thing was, this 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 emptiness inside of him, and that's when it got him. It's always gonna get him. You know, it mm. kind of made me think about film it follows. I don't know if you've ever seen the horror yeah, film it follows. I, I think that's no, more think... supposed to be themed about sex and in mm. that kind of thing, in that film being about women and sexual attitudes towards women, but I think mm. the sign of a good film is it can be interpreted multiple different ways. And yes. that's, that's something I, I, I reflected upon having seen that film. Now, mm-hmm. Anthony Bourdain had a monster following him and he spent his entire life running from it. Unfortunately, in 2018, it caught up with him. Mm. Um, so I think this is a wonderful little documentary. It's got a 7.7 on IMDb. As I said, it's on Prime. If you had any interest in Anthony Bourdain, I think you're going to enjoy it. If you don't know who Anthony Bourdain is, I still think it's worth a watch. You might get a lot out of it in the sense of like, it's a fascinating insight into that kind of thing. And um, I saw a bit of myself in it. I, I don't I don't claim to be, um, my, my career as a world famous chef is still, you know, bubbling away. It's quite middling. Quite middling, you know, like I, I can cook pancakes with a recipe. Um, <laughs> oh, you, you daredevil. <laughs> oh, I take that. Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty exciting stuff because he's at my uh, my apartment, but you know, and I don't indulge in heroin, at least not not during the week. Um, <laughs> so you know, like it's, I, but I can understand that about something you know where you've kind of got, um, yeah, this thing you're trying. You know, if it's yourself, maybe you're trying to get away from yourself. It's emptiness inside you. It's um, I think yeah. it's a, it's something a lot of people in modern society can understand. So, um, really, really, uh, little gem. Um, I'll quickly move on and just sort of Nitro Express talk about mm-hmm. the new episode of the Orville. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's airing in Australia on SBS on demand, which is weird because the rest of the Orville is all on Disney. I don't understand it, but it's not on <laughs> season three. It's not on Disney. It's on SBS in Australia. It's called Electric Sheep, which I can only imagine is a reference to the Philip K. Dick novel. Mm-hmm. Um, Do Andrews dream of electric sheep? Mm-hmm. Uh, as the Orville news completion of a refit in space dock, resentment among the ship's complement towards Azak arises due to his being reinstated after betraying the planetary union to the Kalon. So Isaac is the android robot character uh, from the race of the Kalon. Um, mm-hmm. At the end of season two, the the, uh, the season ends in an, a war between the, well, the Federation, the Orville version of it, um, and the, the Kalon Empire. And he mm-hmm. betrays the um he betrays out of a, a sleeper cell on board the ship and betrays them to the Kalon as part of it. Um, he has been had his memory wiped and reinstated as part of the uh, crew uh, in season three. And okay. this episode really, as it sort of notes, is is really about how he's reintegrated of the crew having betrayed them in so such a visceral mm. manner and such to such great cost. Mm. In the, this is a character in this episode. Um, uh, I'm trying to find the actor here. Um, anyway, as a matter, he's a new character in this episode who is really upset because one of her best friends. Here we go. Anne Winters plays Ensign Charlie Burke. Uh, Ensign Burke's lost a friend who mm-hmm. was killed as part of a Kalon attack, and so where are people um, defacing his quarters, defacing you know uh, parts of the ship he's working in, and basically at some point. Uh, Ensign Burke has to do something only she has the ability to do in order to save, mm. um, to save Isaac. And you know, will she resist 
you know, will she um, go against her orders and mm. not do it? Or will she sort of try and rise above her own personal recriminations against uh, Isaac in order to, you know, do her duty and save his life potentially? So there's some really – this is actually a very, bit of a sleeper episode. There's not a massive amount of action in this episode. Mm. I think the last few episodes of season two were quite action-packed with mm-hmm. um, that, that that arc between the, the war between the Kalon and whatever they call Starfleet in this show. Um, and – uh that wasn't really the uh, this one was, this is one of those quieter episodes where it's really about philosophical themes um mm. you know forgiveness you know guilt mm. suicide um an actual character committing suicide on a mainstream american television program that's not yeah. something you see a whole lot of i think no no it's um not. You, you see a bit here and there you know but not much mm. um so if you're going into this expecting, you know, um, mm. something very, very visceral and exciting, you mm. might come away a bit disappointed. But um, this is actually why I like the Orville. They tell slow, interesting, thoughtful stories. Um, it's come such a long way since it started. It's sort of this vaguely mm. sort of comedic piss take on Star Trek to being, as I always say, the real inheritor of the yeah. legacy of that show uh brave new worlds aside which seems to you know trying to make it up to us all but um this is the kind of thing that trek used to do well right it's not yeah. it's not whiz bang explosions it's 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 stories about humanity mm-hmm. and, and philosophy and big questions interestingly yeah. um uh, she didn't mention it in trek perspective but multiple times during star trek to the Khan, michelle said to me actually i can see why this is, actually does remind me a lot of the Orville. I can see mm. the connection now between the Orville and Star Trek, and I'm like, ah, ah, I told you. So <laughs> <laughs> um, she did not see that as a positive. <laughs> she saw that as a negative towards the Orville. Um, but it seems so far it's, uh, to have held up its quality in terms of writing, and it looks good, acting fantastic mm-hmm. as usual um not even that much of seth mcfarlane who is this the show's biggest star you'd think you'd see a little mm. bit more and he's not in this one it's, remember how trek used to do that it was yeah the, uh, the cast and you tell stories about different members of the cast mm-hmm. you know and you might have a uh a troy and wharf episode or a, you know a troy and chief o'brien episode you know and you get mm-hmm. a little bit of the other guys but it's part of having a an ensemble cast mm-hmm. not everything needs to be about space jesus every week Yes, it is true. So anyway, um, I'm I'm, I'm enjoying it, and at least season one, episode one was was a nice return. Excellent, excellent. Now I'm going to quickly smash through my last thing of the week, which is the, uh, it's available on uh, Prime Video. It is the uh, 2021 documentary, Val, and it is documenting essentially the life of Val Kilmer from a young, probably nine or 10 year old boy up till today. And it is genuinely fascinating because he, for basically that entire period of time has been with a video camera, either filming things or his family filming him and filming his time at um, acting school and going into the stage and things like that. So you get this never before seen footage 
of these really unique, interesting moments in time. And it's so heartbreaking because Val Kilmer got throat cancer and he had it successfully removed. He no longer has throat cancer, but the chemotherapy has ruined his voice to the point where he's got the, the little hole in his throat and he has to choose whether he can breathe or talk and he has to hold it in and it's really hard for him to be understood and you see it, it cuts between it tells the chronological story of his life from childhood and going through and getting those iconic roles like Top Gun like Willow going through to all even the the flops like one of the most legendary flops of all time the island of Dr Moreau with Marlon Brando and particularly the Marlon Brando um, Island of Dr. Moreau one was incredibly eye-opening because we watched that um, way back when, yeah, yeah, a long time ago. And the production of that was just a nightmare, genuine nightmare. Feruza Balk, she ran away from set multiple times and was escorted back, which is just disturbing. John Frankenheimer came in after three days of the first director just quitting. And John Frankenheimer was like, no, I want to get this film done as quickly as fucking possible. Marlon Brando would just not turn up to set. He got a, a double for Marlon Brando for many things. And Val Kilmer has had, for most of his career, a reputation, justifiably or unjustifiably, depending on who you talk to, of being difficult and awkward to work with. But it was a famous story as part of the, um, the story of the Heat, uh, the film Heat, mm-hmm. the Michael Mann film. Mm. of uh was it De Niro telling him your talents uh smaller than your paycheck son uh, sit down or something like that paraphrasing well and that's the thing is if, like Michael Mann had a really good time with him and um he was he, uh there's a bit in heat where he does a quick um ammo change and he did he did it so well that it was used as an example of how to do it perfectly for seal training navy seal training it's like that's that's pretty impressive he puts so much effort into being that part and being that thing which it's not quite method but it's it's method enough that you do start thinking of people notoriously difficult daniel day lewis sean penn those guys where it's like i'll just fucking break character all right um, but then you see this back uh, backstage kind of footage of him, and there's particularly this one where um, he has an argument with John Frankenheimer on the set of Island of Dr. Moreau, and he's very calmly, very articulately saying, I cannot film this scene yet. We need to rehearse it because yesterday you were screaming about how you're going to leave the film, and I feel uncomfortable because I don't know if this film is going to be made. And John Frankenheimer is just like, we'll go to a rehearsal. We'll do this. You just have to turn off your cameras. Like, well, I want a witness because of what you said last time. And there's like, it'll go to different bits. Like he's um, talking to David Thewlis off camera and just saying things like, hey, did you know that Marlon wasn't going to be on set today? Did anyone tell you? He's like, no, because that's not Marlon, right? Like, no, no, that's, that's, that's some other guy. It's like, Hey, what's your name? It's like Glenn or something like that. It's just this guy with white painted face glasses to make, made to look like Marlon Brando. 
and it's heartbreaking because he was a big fan of Marlon and undeniably a talented man, a talented actor to have it, to have his career ripped out of his throat for lack of a, <laughs> lack of a better simile. And he is now doing part of the, like the, the kind of has been actor tour no disrespect to to people who do it where they go around and go to uh conventions and do signings of their previous work but it kills him he says that it kills him because he's he feels like he's still got the talent to to do things he just doesn't literally can't do the voice and he's just trading on his old work and it breaks him and you see him just breaking down and feeling really emotional and it's, it's an interesting slice of behind the scenes of some fantastic films, for one thing, and behind the creative process of someone who was a uniquely talented, highly interesting personality that, were it not for the throat cancer, would, I am damn sure, still be doing movies today. And Oh, certainly, especially considering the retro value of his stuff. Like, I mean... Top Gun 2 has done so incredibly well. Mm -hmm. We've seen um, Michael Keaton coming back as Batman again. Of course, mm -hmm. he played Batman in the third one. Um, yep. You know, um, Affleck's getting out of a Batman film. No one's mm -hmm. talking about Clooney getting out of a Batman film, but I'm sure it's coming. Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe he could be playing that role again or something. I want to be, you know. I don't think that he would want to go back to that because it sounds like he had a really horrible time on set. Um, but, you know, I, I just think of, oh, God, what if? Tarantino, Val Kilmer had got together on a project, legitimately not true romance. <laughs> it would just be. He's directed the kind of actor he would have liked to work with. I think so. I think so because he 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 talks about it in it, saying if you can work out how to play within the walls of what your director wants, they will love you. If you go against that and you persistently keep trying to push beyond those walls, that's when um, arrogance and problems come in. It's like, no, that make that makes sense. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really, that, but yeah, I genuinely recommend it for people who like um, biographies, autobiographies, and documentaries because it is a unique story because of the way that it was captured, like. Years, a few years ago now, there was the Richard Linklater movie called Boy, um, or The Boy, I think it was. And it was shot over years to follow this young child from a very young boy to, to teenage and young adult. And they kind of cut it together and it had Ethan Hawke in it and things like that. This is kind of like that, but not staged despite it being about an actor. <laughs> um, it is slice of life and it's chronicling a person's life in a very interesting, compelling way compared to what we've talked about so many times in biography movies where generally we seem to endear ourselves more to the ones that go, okay, we're just going to fit to this little slice of time in that person's life and we're going to focus on it. This has a 40-year span and it's compelling throughout the whole thing because it's almost like reading his diary because it is just all film footage of him behind the scenes um, in downtime where he's arriving at the uh, aircraft carrier for Top Gun and things like that. And it's just those little snippets that make you go, oh, yeah, he literally lived this. I'm, I'm seeing what he saw. This is not 
reconstruction through the fanciful lens of Hollywood. This is what was filmed. And it, I respect it for that. Sounds good. I remember it getting pretty good reviews. I think it played at Myth here when it opened uh, a couple mm. of years ago. So yeah. uh, interesting that he had a video camera around quite so much, yet he never never directed, if I don't I'm still not mistaken, he was never a film director. Well, he um, one of his last major projects was um, a one-man play um, about Mark Twain. And it was just called Citizen uh, Twain. And he wrote and directed it. And it was getting really good reviews, really, really good reviews. And he was building up to get it to go onto Broadway and then bye-bye voice. Can't do a stage play without a voice, really. It's very hard. He is. He did direct. He's down as director of a film version of that play. And it looks like a film in development. He's down as the writer, director, and star of about Mark Twain as well. So that's going to be interesting. Well, that's, that's the um, interesting thing. And we got to get a sneak peek of it in Top Gun Maverick because he's had a, a video camera in his life. There's so much source material for his voice that there's a company that have actually been able to recreate his voice as a, essentially a voice box. Interestingly, and, I didn't mention this, but they did the same thing in the, the um, Anthony Bourdain documentary. They actually used the deep fake version of his voice to actually um, replicate him reading some of the emails he'd written, written later in his life. So, wow, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah. That was quite controversial in that film because yeah. obviously he was you know dead. Um, yeah. This one, obviously, at least Val can say, "Yeah, cool, I'm okay with that." Mm, yeah. So it's really it's a really interesting um, up and down for his for his career, and I I do miss him as as an actor. I enjoyed seeing what he would bring to a role that even I'm now going to go back and watch his generally average movie of the saint, just because it was him being able to be multiple people in one go. I feel like he was the sort of actor who would have relished doing a more serious version of what Peter Sellers did and what Mike Myers does to generally unsuccessful results, especially these days of playing multiple characters because he spent so much time getting into these mindsets and theories and um, the shoes of each character. I, I can just see him really having fun with that and just seeing like an actor's studio kind of, yes, this is, this is how an actor works his craft. Um, I always like the saying, you're right. It's not a great movie, but um, it's of its time. Yes. Yes. Very true. <laughs> But that's it. That um, brings us to the end of the show, ladies and gentlemen. A little longer than normal, and we did start late. Apologies for that. Computer technology is a pain in the ass on this show, as is the acts of God. Um, but the power didn't go off. That's a plus. The power did not go off. There has been threats <laughs> the power would go off. I suspect mm. this show may be responsible for power shortages on the east coast of Australia. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but um, we had our chain movie of the week, which is Carrie. We are going to be following that up with Blowout. Um, we talked about, uh, in no particular order, The Boys, Orv The Orville, Trek Respective came back for episode two. And while it was an improvement on the quality of the movie, still Michelle, no impressed. Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Lamentations, Roadrunner, Val, and... Um, we talked about uh, Bridget Jones' diary. <laughs> you can see that one uh, coming. 
No, no. And who knows what will appear next week. Ne- next week, though, I've already got it booked in on my calendar. I will be talking about Alex Garland's men. Men, 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 men. <laughs> Women in tights. All right. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Have a good evening. See you next time. Good night.